Hello and welcome back to episode 43 of Double Reel. This is the fourth part of our monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. Hopefully you've caught up with the other parts which came out in the past couple of weeks. If not, please do go back to your app, download them and have a listen. These include Double Reel Monthly with news, reviews of new releases, including Paw Patrol, a Mighty Pups movie, Killers of the Flower Moon and David Finch's The Killer. My monthly David Cronenberg film Dead Ringers and James's look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. Then we had the fiendish penalty shootout film quiz. We followed that up with our regular features episode, including classics from recommended feature The Brotherhood of the Wolf, our hidden gem Rescue Dawn, a one that got away which was Steven Spielberg's Trial of the Chicago 7, and a remake hate watch of 2007's The Invasion. Hopefully you can find something in that bumper episode to listen to and enjoy. Now in our final part for this month, we give you the big conversation where we talk about a topic from the film world in more detail. First of all, a warm welcome to my co-host, James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. So the topic of this uh, month's big conversation is the cinema bucket list, um, which we're we're defining as uh, films that you should try and see at the cinema, you know, on the big screen, the way they're intended, you know, before you before you die, the, you know, the things that you should see at least once in your life. Um, but for, I mean, firstly, James, uh, where are you on bucket lists generally? I mean, you're you're a you're a young guy. You're looking at you know, you're getting married soon. You're looking to develop your career, whole life ahead of you. Um, is sort of doing a bucket list of like things you, you've got to get done. Is that I mean, where does that sit with you at this sort of time in your life? I don't really give a shit about bucket lists because everything that's on everyone else's bucket list is fucking borderline suicidal. Like jumping out of an airplane and bungee jumping and all that nonsense and all going to Everest and all that fucking pish. I don't really care about that. But when it came to this, um, for films, I kind of took it as films that you kind of have to see. I felt like it was a bit easier. Mm-hmm. So for, so if you confine it to films, you found it a bit easier to sort of think, yeah, there, yeah, there are I some mean, things there, yeah. My life isn't in danger. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, it, unless it's, unless it's a nouveau ball film when he's in the room. No, I'd fucking kick his cunt in. But, um, <laughs> that's besides the point, Mister Ball. Please don't ever come near me. Um, but yeah, all jokes aside, when it came to kind of the, the task at hand, I found it quite easy. It was films that I really enjoyed and found really important, or visually striking or just a great film you know that mm-hmm. it wasn't anything maybe like particularly strong in terms of message or you know visuals just a film that everyone should see because of the way it made me feel when i watched it and that could be you know in terms of like emotionally moving funny or just like a really good film like mm-hmm. cinematically so yeah um I don't know was it, was, so it, were you looking at that as just films that you should see or were you thinking particularly about seeing them on the big screen like you know so Obviously, every film's made to be seen at the cinema from mm. from at least a financial perspective. But obviously, there obviously there are directors that um, have a different kind of angle when it comes to it. like obviously Christopher Nolan. Every single one of his films should probably be seen on a big screen because he tries to make his films visually something that you want to see mm-hmm. on a big screen. Um, but then also, I think there's other films that necessarily don't sorry don't necessarily have. You know, the big scale and the big shots and the IMAX cameras and the CGI mm-hmm. or the crazy practical effects. But you can you think just for kind of the that moment of being in the cinema and seeing the film is quite an enjoyable moment. Like if, if it's a comedy film, it, that film isn't necessarily made to blow you away in terms of visuals, but kind of that kind of 
group watching and enjoying it and having yeah. a laugh can also be a good experience. So yeah, I mean, if, if you know, a live audience all laughing at the same thing as you, there's you know, that's part of the communal experience, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm glad you found something out of it, mate. I mean, for me, I'm not really one for bucket lists. I'd quite like to go to Japan one day. Um, you know, stuff like that. I don't particularly have like a huge number of things that you know I want to kind of, you know, you know, go to the bottom of the ocean or anything like that. But as far as cinema bucket lists went, I started to think about this. Obviously, I'm you know older than you, and I'm not starting to think you know along sort of bucket list lines or anything like that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that fucking old. But where it came to me on on, on the cinema stuff is that over the past couple of years, for the the John Carpenter. Uh, project I did a couple of years ago. I got to see the, you know, my favorite, and I think everyone's everyone agrees the best John Carpenter film on that list, um, The Thing. It was being shown, you know, on a, a cinema in, in London, the Prince Charles that showed old classic movies. And I remember being really chuffed that I got to see that on the big screen. That is a big deal. And then the same thing happened the following year for the Kubrick project, where <clears throat> I went to see Two Thousand and One at the cinema, and that, and that was that was a you know a big deal to do that as part of the uh, part of the projects as well. And then this year, what I was thinking about was, uh, you know, I went to see the new Denzel Washington film, Equalizer 3, not because I had any great desire to watch the Equalizer 3 at the cinema, or even watch the Equalizer 3 at all, to be quite honest. But I, I just remember thinking, how many Denzel Washington films have I actually seen in the cinema? I think Denzel Washington's a fantastic actor, I think absolutely amazing. And then I added up and went, I've not actually seen him on the big screen that many times, you know? Yeah. And I thought this might be the last... I mean, I'm sure he's going to go and do other like great stuff at the cinema, but he probably won't do many more big, you know, you know, Denzel absolutely kicking people's asses in type action films anymore. I think he's going to move to a different stage of his career, so I thought I'd better do it. And, and likewise, Scorsese, when I went to see Killers of the Flower Moon lately, it was a case of, wow, I haven't actually seen all that many Scorsese films at the cinema either because I'm not going to see Taxi Driver because, you know, I was three when it came out. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, there's always a limit to the, the number of his films that I can see. He started leaving longer gaps between films. It, it You know, in, in all honesty, I wasn't so desperate to go and see The Aviator that I rushed out to see it at the cinema or Hugo. Do you know what I mean? I don't always... But then I thought, I've not actually seen that many Scorsese films on the big screen. Um and, you know, I hope I'm not missing out as a result. So, so it just got me thinking in that mode. And I thought it would make for a nice kind of big conversation because it's just an opportunity to talk about great films, isn't it? Um, so what I've, I've done similar to you is I've just come up with a list of films that for one reason or another, you know, feel like something that should be seen on the big screen. I mean, but when you were doing that, I mean, you've already given some thoughts of yours about w what in particular makes a film something that you should, you know, put on your bucket list to see on the big screen as opposed to going, oh, I'll, rent, rent, I'll rent it, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stream it when it's available. What, what, why, why in particular do, should we go and see the, the films that we're going to nominate on the big screen, mate? Um, I think kind of just tying into what I said before, I think they have some importance to us um, yeah. personally, but also in terms of what they might have done for cinema, like mm -hmm. whether they were technologically like, you know, revolutionary or just, just anything. It can be mm -hmm. almost anything. I think if you really enjoyed a film enough at the cinema, then you can justify going to see it at the cinema in whatever way you like. It doesn't necessarily have to be like, you have to go and see Avatar or Inception because the effects are just brilliant. Or you have mm -hmm. to go and see, um, you know, The Shining because it's a classic and it's terrifying. You know, I think that's the kind of way I've looked at it. I've tried to kind of a, have a broad spread of films 
and mm-hmm. as opposed to just you know falling into like the films I usually would watch and tend to lean yeah. to. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think yeah, I think for, for me as well. I think it's just the uh, the we'll, we'll go through the best way to do it is to go through the list of films that we're going to talk about because each one will have some reason or other why it should be on the bucket list, you know. And I think they'll all be there for like a range of reasons. Um, as, as I tend to, I stuck you know stuck a question up on various socials asking people what you know what films were on their bucket list and got um, got some interesting responses. Uh, as we often do for the big conversation, I'm not. Well, I appreciate everybody who's who's, who's contributed it, it, for in the interest of time and because most of it was just saying a film. I'm not going to name everybody and everything. I'm just going to list the films that, that they came up with. But just in no particular order, the order that people kind of stuck them up, uh, Yojimbo, the Akira Kurosawa classic that was later turned into A Fistful of Dollars, uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall, um, Audition, which is a Takashi Miki sort of uh, pretty horrific film, Jaws, Goodfellas, Heat, All About Eve, uh, Leone's Dollars trilogy, The King and I, uh, Kagemusha, which is another classic Kurosawa, uh, The Shining, uh, the original 1978 Halloween, the original 1933 King Kong, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, Man on Fire, They Live, Casablanca, uh, The Third Man, which I found out, by the way, that you can go and see any time in Vienna if you go there on a city break. It's always showing in the cinema somewhere in Vienna, The Third <laughs> Man. Um because it's set there and you know, blah. Um, the big sleep, uh, touch of evil, and Citizen Kane. I mean, that's a just a hugely diverse list of films, and just goes to show how many different things you can actually do with cinema that that, that a list like that exists. But um, sort of gut feel looking at those. I mean, can you any common denominators that you would see from that list of films? They all tend to be kind of like classics, don't they? Yeah. They're not so, necessarily well-known classics, but they would. If we were to do a features on them, they would all fall under the classics and recommended, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, without speculating too much about the ages of the people who like posted that list, I think the vast majority of them are films that people didn't get to see when they first came out in the cinema, either because they're done before they were born or when they were too young, you know, to, to go and see that at the cinema. And they've come to those films later and go, "God, I really love that film. I bet that would be great on the big screen." I think there's a lot of that there. Um, you know, there's quite a few old classics here, you know, Casablanca, and I bet Casablanca would be great on the big screen, actually, and Touch of Evil and Citizen Kane, you know, it's, uh, I'm trying to think how many sort of classic black and white films I have seen at, at the cinema. I do remember going to see the original 1930s version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, because they were showing that on, again, the Prince Charles has been sort of, or it might have been the BFI. Um, yeah, that, it, it is interesting. So I think go, go back to the classics that, that some people would be going, but, um, you know that that's why people have put that put that on their list. Um, and obviously, the 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 main ways that these are going to come round as an opportunity is if there's some sort of anniversary or reissue of a film. Because I've done that with The Godfather. I think they've done that with The Godfather a couple of times now. They did Godfather. I think I saw Godfather at the cinema, and it's like 25th anniversary. It's just come round to its 50th, right? Or it might have been its 30th anniversary. Looking back. Um, if they decided to remaster it or something like that, the Abyss. If you're a big fan of the Abyss, that's going to that's being remastered. You might get that out of the cinema. And the other one is if there's a cinema near you that shows classic movies. 
you know, sometimes your local cinema does a classics night. It's worth looking out for that. And if there's a cinema, repertory cinema near you, we had Primetime Mitch on on a special episode earlier in the year, and we talked about there's a cinema near him that shows classic movies, sisters, a thing. That's how you're going to do it. Um, so I thought, I mean, I thought the easiest way we could just go through this, like, you know, our, our bucket list, mate, is just kind of chuck out films, you know, and, 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 and chat and, and, and have a little chat about them. Um, I thought first, though, I've got a couple of films that I would say they'd be on my bucket list if I hadn't already seen them. And I thought I'd just mention them anyway. I don't know if you've got any like that. If you'd thought about any films that actually, uh, you know, if you hadn't seen them, they'd, they, they would, they'd be on this, they'd be on the list now. Um, not really. I don't really look, at, I don't really have like a list of films that I think I have to see on like a certain bucket list. Um, okay. as like maybe as much as you do. Yeah, but I mean, I'll, I'll read them anyway because I think you know, and then maybe I'll ask you to think of any films that you that that you that you've watched already that were so such profound experiences that you might want to kind of you know that 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 qualify as a bucket list film or qualify as a that that kind of film. The the classic films are the great films that you know that I would I I probably had as bucket list films or would have as bucket list films if I hadn't already seen them. Uh, Two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. I think that's how it's an absolutely essential film. The the difference between seeing that at home and seeing that on the cinema is so so massive. It, it, it's one of the films that makes such utter and complete use of like the cinematic experience. And it's it's a look. You watch it at home, terrific film. Watch it on the big screen, and it feels like you are being transported somewhere. It's absolutely immense. Um, Ran. Uh, the Kurosawa um, uh, version of King Lear that that was incredible. I already mentioned the thing that was just that was just so great to go and see on the big screen. Apocalypse Now. I've been fortunate enough to see that a couple of times at the cinema now because they they show it fairly regularly at the Prince Charles, and Coppola keeps issuing like new versions, which gives you a chance to go and see like a brand new fresh print. And Apocalypse Now is another kind of the sound design of Apocalypse Now. It's one thing; it doesn't matter how good you're. Um, I remember you saying this to me. Do you remember we we watched 1917 for the pod, mate? Yes. I remember you saying you went to see this on a really big cinema screen, and and I remember you saying, and you were absolutely right. It doesn't matter how like good or big a TV and sound system you've got at home, that you're you're missing out if you don't see that on the big screen. Yeah, unless your TV is like three meters the long. wall yeah, yeah. and apocalypse now is the same the sound design the cinematography the whole experience of that film that just begs to be on the big screen um the godfather just because it's a classic movie alien i was really privileged to get to go and see alien because they were reissuing that on the, the bfi and one we went to see together mate mad max fury road yes i think i i, I think I would be telling people, and we, we might do this a little bit later. We might actually let, let's nominate some films that we think should be on other people's bucket list. We don't we don't often do that, right? We're not the sort of podcast that says, you know, if you look at the features that we do, right, like the classics and the hidden gem. Neither of those are about telling people what they should have watched, telling people that they're not they're not in the know or not one of the in crowd or they're not a proper movie fan if they haven't seen X. We are not about that at all. The classics feature is. We haven't seen this and we've decided to get around to seeing it. Not to make anyone else watch that movie, but just to encourage people to look at their own list of things that, they, that they'd like to see. Same with The Hidden Gem. The Hidden Gem is about, if you like this kind of movie, we think you'll enjoy this movie. The kind of conversation you have with a friend in the pub, they talk about films they like and you go, you know what, a film you'd quite like, I reckon you'd like this. And 
just in the hope that that they do watch it and like it that would be so gratifying that you've shared it with somebody else so this whole thing is about sharing like great movies that we love with other people and not for, you know foisting them on you making you think you should see it but if you love cinema and i assume that you're listening to this podcast because you you love cinema mad max fury road i mean what kind of what was that like as a cinema experience mate yeah you you don't even pay attention to that like most of the dialogue in the story in that film because the story of that film is just effectively just like another action film isn't it they, it's they, just the sheer visuals of it all. Well, the thing is that it was written in a unique way. They didn't have a a regular script. George Miller's script for the film was basically done as storyboards. The whole script was storyboards because yeah. he just wanted it to be such an intense visual experience. So while there's dialogue and story and all of that, the way they wrote it was just designed to just just basically go directly into your brain, you know. Yeah, like I, I can name one quote from that film, and it's Nicholas Holt's character at the start. And other than that, I couldn't really name you a quote from the rest of the film. Yeah, yeah. because you're just looking at it, thinking, "Oh my god." There's a few likes, like "It was a boy," or um, or or um, uh, Tom Hardy going, "That's bait," you know. But just little lines, because everything is just like just it just been it's just yeah, like look at know, this desert, seared yeah. into your eyeballs. I've tried to make it in the sense of like it's a bucket list I'm recommending to someone else, like ten okay. films for someone else. That if you haven't seen mm-hmm. that, you must go and see that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, All right. Oh, so, fair enough. All right. Well, well, let's just rattle through it then. Yeah, um, like I think it's more of like a ten films you have to see before you die kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, what, what, why don't you talk about a film on on, on your list of ten? Tell me, what, tell me what you think. I think everyone should uh, at some point in their life watch 12 Years a Slave. That was the first one when that just came to mind when we when you said let's do this. It was like 12 Years a Slave. Yeah, I, I, I did make I did I did make a note of that. I was thinking, yeah, that is that is one of the most intense cinematic experiences that we've seen. And again, uh more more on the big screen, important to see on the big screen rather than just at, you know watch it at home. Yes, uh, for me it's quite underrated in terms of its cinematography. Um, I'm surprised. I don't know if it got nominated that year, but it, I don't think it won. I think Gravity won that year. But Gravity um, sort of walked away with all the technical awards that year, including direction. Which I like Gravity, but uh, like you, I think there are things that that Steve McQueen achieved with that that film as a director, uh, which were absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, I think it's. I think. All of the performances are kind of enhanced by the fact that when you watch a film at home, you can be distracted by your phone or, you know, you can be distracted mm-hmm. by kids or dogs or, oh, fuck, I forgot to, you know, to put that washing on kind of thing. Whereas in the cinema, you ha- you are forced to watch it mm-hmm. almost. And I think the performance in that, they make it much more stark or starker, mm-hmm. like the as to harrowing it is. And in terms of the visuals of it, it's obviously not Gravity or one of those kind of films. But I think the, the way Steve McQueen kind of conveys the South is really important to see. Because mm-hmm. I feel like we, just as a species, whenever we talk about the, you know, the, the American slave trade, everyone seems it's like, oh, look how profitable the cotton, the like cotton picking wars and tobacco and all that kind of just how unprofitable the slave trade was but he actually depicts the south as this kind of dying mm-hmm. wasteland and it shows you slaves being loaned out by slave owners to pay off debts and stuff and it wasn't this kind of like gold mine that it's always seems to have been portrayed as and 
why they went to war. They they went to war because they were going to lose their entire livelihood. Now that would have been true of some people who are absolutely mega rich, like mm-hmm. like a Calvin Candy type. But on the whole, it was you know it was it was a lot lot more different to that. And I think that's an important thing to see because you know yeah this kind yeah. of. I think it was it was almost like a kind of fuck you to Gone with the Wind, where Gone with the Wind mm-hmm. is this absolutely romanticizes it in, in all sorts yeah, it's of really ridiculous grotesque ways. Like yeah. The Southern Bell and all this fucking bullshit, and you know the the main white uh, female in that film is one of the most evil characters that you will ever mm-hmm. meet. Um, so I think it's, I just think it's a film that everyone should see. I was absolutely blown mm-hmm. away. It was a film that I saw. I thought, yeah, I really, I think I really need to see that. I was studying the American Civil War mm-hmm. at that time at school, and yeah, um, just that—that that was the first film that came to mind when you said, "This is what we're going to do for the big conversation." Yeah, and I, I do think its technical achievements are underrated. It wasn't even nominated for cinematography that year, which I think is uh, um, disappointing. And I'm just checking whether it was nom- even nominated for score. I don't think it was nominated for best original score, which it is... should have should have been at least. Um, I would have. I mean, it was Hans Zimmer that did it, so I would have. I would have given him the win. Yeah. I think. I think even just the sound in general. Mm-hmm. I think just everything. You know the. I think what's really underrated about that film is the kind of the pauses mm-hmm. in in the conversations and yeah. the way that you know, Chwetelejo Four's character um, Solomon Northup isn't your isn't a typical slave. He's an intelligent free man from the north. And it's almost like everything he has to say has to be quite calculated. And I think it's it's the kind of pauses and the looks mm. and the responses. Yeah. I know that's not necessarily like sound editing, but even just, you know... No, it is. You're just, right. You it's right. I, the fact I mean. that yeah, I know. I know what you mean. The fact is, the sound and the absence of sound are both very important. In the same of the way, the light and absence of light are very important to the cinematography. Yeah, look, you preach to the converted here. I, I have that down as something everyone should see once at the cinema. So I, I, I definitely agree. Um, now I, I've done my list slightly differently, um, and I've got a few more on it than ten. So how about I do a couple here? And and basically say these are two films that are on my personal bucket list. Yeah. Yeah. So I, the two that I'm going to talk about, I mean, I've got more like this, is Vertigo and 12 Angry Men. Um, to be honest, I've just wrote the list in this order, but it comes out quite well because they are um, they both came out within a couple of years of each other. 12 Angry Men's like 1956, 57. Uh, Vertigo's 1958. And for me, I think Vertigo is the Hitchcock film that I absolutely, utterly want to see at the cinema most of all. Um the it, it's weird because a lot of the kind of the the color and the cinematography of that time is very different to today. But it, it, it you know Hitchcock started to do stuff a lot more on location there. He does San Francisco on location. The color is is extraordinary. The sound is extraordinary. Uh, but at the same time, as well as having sort of because it's vertigo, some stuff about you know fear of heights and the the size and scale of San Francisco is is covered in the film. There's also these incredible close-ups on the two main actors, James Stewart and Kim Novak, which are just uh, so powerful. And the whole thing has this dizzying, disorienting feel. And again, similar to something like 2001: A Space Odyssey, when a film makes you feel like that. Feeling like that in the cinema on the bigger screen with the greater intensity, like you described, you don't go and check the washing machine. You don't pause it to 
to you know get grab something from the fridge your you know your your concentration is so much more focused in this dark room you know with with the bigger sound and the bigger visuals i really want to see that and 12 angry men is just it's riveting cinema i know it's just 12 guys in a room but it's just riveting cinema that i just thought you know what if that's ever on at the cinema i you know i would totally want to see that i mean don't know what your thoughts are about those two films um yeah i think those two films are just you know the kind of they're almost like the stereotype of classics mm-hmm. you know that they although they're films from you know back in the olden days and the olden times with like the romans and the greeks and stuff mm-hmm. that they're you know they're, they're ancient cinema almost but mm-hmm. they're like they're just they don't make it feel like ancient cinema and i think hitchcock was an absolute master at that because i've mm-hmm. got a hitchcock film coming up on my list mm-hmm. um and yeah i think Twelve Angry Men is absolutely brilliant. Um, Vertigo is, but I don't think Vertigo is even Hitchcock's best. Um, that's why it's not the one that's on my list. But I can understand you why you would put it on. You know, a, a kind of bucket list of films. Um, yeah, yeah, for me, for choices. me, Vertigo. For me, Vertigo wasn't my favourite film to begin with. I didn't even like it very much the first time I watched it. But it sort of wormed its way into my sort of brain a little bit for a long time after I watched it. Now I watched it again and was completely blown away by it, which is why I think it's not always everybody's favourite Hitchcock film, because it's quite possible to watch it once and go, well, I'm not quite sure how I feel about that film, or he has other films which are just just feel so instantly classic to you. Um, I think one of the reasons I I love Vertigo as much as I do it's the one film where I think Hitchcock confronts his own tendencies with the most kind of honesty, if you see what I mean. Because the film examines taking this woman and moulding her and kind of putting your own kind of shit onto her, you know, your own kind of thoughts and fears and, like, obsessions and using a woman as your almost like your, your vessel for that. And in having a character doing that, Hitchcock is clearly talking to an extent about himself and his own films. Um... And also the storyline is just, it's its just mesmeric, the way it's like, oh my God, this guy is so far gone. This guy is so traumatized and watching this trauma play out. And it's weird watching a film in the 50s talking about trauma. I think that's more common now, don't you think? But back then it's, yeah, the, yeah but yeah, so that's why, that's it. So that's, that, 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 that's those two of mine. Twelve Angry Men's a film you like, but I don't, I don't imagine it's on your, your bucket list that you've written. Nah, it's not like a, it's not like a favourite, but I know that it's, it would probably be in everyone's top 10 films from anyone like over the age of like 40, just because mm-hmm. it's just one of those films that mm-hmm. everyone has like soft spots for. Yeah. Uh, because it was kind of one of those first films that just kind of blew people away. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sense, I think we'd had kind of classic cinema and the kind of classic, you know, yeah. initial age of Hollywood, and then Twelve Angry Men kind of came along, and it was like, okay, yeah, films can be like this, yeah, and they're, they're on my bucket list because I haven't seen them. These are all, uh, these are, you know, uh, I I came out before I was born, uh, you know, not, I'm keep I'm keeping an eye on the you know the cinema opportunities, you know, to to go and see these, um, but yeah. yeah, but it's simple as that. All right, mate, you want to chuck us another one from yours? So, yeah, again, my list is completely different to yours, but I'm kind of liking the way that we've done it. You've got films that you've not seen and you're waiting for the opportunity, and I've got ones that I'm just telling people to go and watch. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll tie into yeah, your fine. It's fine, it's our own thoughts, yeah. Uh, and I've gone for Rear Window. Yeah, so my history with Rear Window is that my mum and dad are both film fans. They're the ones who got me into films. My dad took me to see my first film, which was Star Wars, and my mum was the one who, seeing that I was clearly a big movie fan, 
she sat me down and said, right, Hitchcock, sit there. I'm putting on some Hitchcock films for you. And she showed me Rear Window and Vertigo. And Rear Window is by far her favourite out of that because she's a people watcher. She loves, you know, she loves kind of watching the world go by. And this is the ultimate people watching film, isn't it? So what's your, what's your history of the Rear Window? So I saw Rear Window at the a s- sort of small cinema, but still a oh, big wow, screen. Oh, wow, you've seen it in the cinema, you lucky yes. duck. It was at... Um, the Belmont in Aberdeen, they had a showing of it. Oh, I yeah, I've, I've been there. It's a good independent cinema. It's not It's not even there anymore. It's shut down. Oh, um, really? I, yeah, I guess it's yeah, a yeah. casualty of COVID and stuff, right? But, um, yeah, it. Uh, what just blew me away is that when you hear Hitchcock, you go, oh, fuck, one of these films from the 50s. And that's why I was like back then. I think I was 17 or something or 18 at the time. And I thought, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to watch one of these old people films. And then... Right away, you're just well, not right, right away, but as soon as you start seeing the film through Jimmy Stewart's camera lens, you, that's you for the next hour and a half to f- hour and 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. You don't think of anything else, you think, Oh my god, this is unbelievable! Like, and do you know what I think? Do you know what I, l- I love about it is that I don't think I've ever seen another film like it. And that film came out nearly 70 years ago, mm-hmm. and I've never seen another film that's done through the, the POV of a, like. A photographer's camera lens. I think that's yeah. Just... I mean, th- th- there have been, but not in the same way. I mean, I think there's a famous film called Peeping Tom, which is a horror, like uh, it's a very controversial kind of early slasher film, where the photographer like is killing women. Um, but what what's I think unique that what you've tapped into with Rear Window there is that he makes it's the ultimate film for making the point of view of the main character the point of view of the audience. You're sitting next to Jimmy Stewart looking out the window with him. Do you know what I mean? And he's pointing yeah. out stuff to you and you get caught up in it. Because as well as the technical brilliance of it, apparently it was the biggest set ever made by that time. They actually built that courtyard. Right. Um, because basically Hitchcock wanted to be able to just have complete control of the environment so that he had an apartment, you know, woman in that, that apartment doing her exercises, guy playing the piano in the other apartment and all of that stuff. So he basically built the set on a sound stage, and it was a basically full-size, you know, courtyard with apartments on either side. Um, and and it's brilliant, and it's a really compelling story. You know, did he, didn't he? Is Jimmy Stewart just making it up? You know, has a murder actually taken place? But it's it's also Hitchcock saying, you're watching this with me, aren't you? I like to look. I like to poke my nose into other people's business, and so do you, don't you? Come and sit with me and we'll nose around into other people's business. And that complicity of the cinema, it's just brilliant, isn't it? Because it's what Hitchcock was very, very good at, was just made, giving you that slightly awkward, chilly feeling of like, oh, I'm I'm a, I'm a bit of a dirty bird for, bit, for for wanting to watch what happens next. Do you know what I mean? But I'm still yeah. going to watch what happens next. So he's really absolutely, he's basically got the whole audience in the palm of his hand, doesn't he? So he's just sort of taking them where, wherever he wants them to go. Yeah, it's it's kind of tapping into the human nature of kind of wanting to be a bit nosy, however mm-hmm. much, however nosy you are, and whether you don't like to admit it. We've all kind of got that kind of like, oh, what's going on over there? Like you see the police, you see the police outside, you know, mm-hmm. knocking on someone's door, or you see them, they've pulled someone over. You go, oh, what's happened there? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of in human nature to kind of just be a nosy bastard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's it's brilliant. Um, yeah, so that's why I put that one there because it just it is brilliant and it's. 
even though it is an old timey film, a foggy film, you can really appreciate the fact that it's uh, it is a technical kind of masterpiece, especially of its time. It still holds up today, which is fucking mental. Yeah, I mean the story definitely holds up. What did you think of some of the uh, the special effects? There's a bit where someone falls out of a window and stuff like that. Did that? Yeah, but I mean, in more in terms of like the the way the way it's shot, you can you can believe that's you know a, a photographer's camera lens that you're watching the film through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously quite a small thing, and probably was probably a relatively simple thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's still absolutely brilliant. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those. I think like Get Out, like some of these other films, where you go as soon as somebody has that idea, you they're just, they're just onto such a winner, aren't they? So if you do this right, this is going to be perfect. Uh, and it's and it's like that, isn't it? The idea that you know a guy who's a guy who takes pictures of a living who's nosy for a living basically is laid up because of an injury and all he can do is look out of his window and kind of you know watch you know vicariously watch what's going on in other people's lives thinks he's witnessed a murder I mean it's just like there you go you're I mean anyone who sits down to watch that film is just basically watching it till the end aren't they yeah absolutely well that's a good one and, and to have seen it yourself in the cinema is a great 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 yeah. uh uh, that that's amazing. That that's why it's uh, cherishing those opportunities is important. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to chuck another two out, and then when when I think you've got the same number left on your list as I do, we'll just start doing a one each. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Otherwise, it's going to be. How many have I recommended? Three. Over. Oh, no, I've recommended two, haven't I? Yeah. You said you got ten on your list. Yeah, yeah. I've got about fourteen, so we're gonna, we're going to level off eventually. But I'll, I'll okay. do I'll do a couple, and then otherwise I'll be droning on at the end, doing like four films in a row. Um, the next two, again, they sort of have a certain amount of companionship, but they are really this is just the order I wrote them down in. Uh, are Amadeus and The Godfather Part Two? Um, it's probably easier to do The Godfather Part Two first. I was lucky enough to see The Godfather on the big screen when it was reissued for an anniversary. Didn't get the chance to do it for Godfather Part 2. Its 50th anniversary is next year. Uh, I, I think I really want to go and see it. It's such an amazing film. And Coppola has always been about incredible visual sort of strength, as well as great story and everything else. And and yet, the Godfather films, apart from once going to see the God, first Godfather film at the cinema, I've always watched these films on the small screen. And I'm, 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 I just want to see how cinematic they are up on the big screen. I mean, I've seen, and I've seen other couple of films on the big screen. I saw Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is not one of his best. I saw seen Apocalypse Now, you know, at the cinema as well. And I just, I just want to see those big frames. The, it's like the, what I remember from The Godfather Part II is it, it just displays so beautifully like the emptiness of Michael's world. The empire that he wins at the end of The Godfather by basically killing everybody is this really chilly, frozen, empty Isolated, world yeah. yeah and he's just the kid he's just the was it um the, the the quote in johnny cash's uh hurt my empire of dirt do you know what i mean he's won all of this but it, it doesn't look like you know and he just looks at this increasingly isolated cold horrifying figure and the you know late tahoe set the cuba it's i mean god i just want to see that on the big screen i just want to see it on the on the on the on the canvas that that um uh that coppola originally put it on 
is the main reason and also because next year is the 50th anniversary and they did do the godfather first film for its 50th anniversary i think that's coming out next year so i do want to go and see that the other one on the, the other one on that list is amadeus now what's your history with amadeus the film i've never seen it i don't really give a shit about classical music let alone the fucking story behind the guys that made that boring shit but i know you absolutely love that film that's interesting because i, I tell you what never a huge fan of classical music myself and I think that one of the achievements of Amadeus is that it does makes make for such a compelling story. When a lot of people will just go, eh, classical music, yes, yeah, so what? Do you know what I mean? And I don't sit down and listen to Mozart. I don't sit, you know, I don't watch opera. I'm not really massively into that stuff. But Amadeus is such an unbelievably gripping story. And I remember hearing about it because it did so well at the Oscars. I think it won, um, it certainly won Best Actor. Um, for um, F. Murray Abram. Yeah, that's right. And Tom Hulse as Mozart, I think, was nominated as well. But I think as good as he was, it just F. F. Murray Abram just completely owned that film. Um, but it obviously did a lot of... It was nominated for pretty much everything. Best, best Picture, which it won. Best Director, which it won. It had the two leads were both nominated for best best actor and one of them won it won best adapted screenplay best art direction. It was nominated for cinematography didn't win it won costume design film editing makeup sound. It's just pretty much swept the board. So it didn't win anything, but it won an absolute ton of Oscars. And I was just at the age where I go, all right, the Oscars says who the best films are. Now we've done the Oscars at length. We've done a couple of things about you know a few things about the Oscars now, mate. I think we've I think we've we've analysed fairly closely what's good and what's not good about the Oscars. But when you're a kid, right, and you hear there's a thing called the Oscars that says that tells you who the, what the best films are, you sort of go, well, if they've said that's the best film, I'll probably watch that basically. And that's still that's still what the Oscars are for, right? Um, so I watched it and just from beginning to end, I was absolutely gripped. I've watched like two hours, sort of 20 minutes, sort of theatrical version. I watched the nearly three hours long director's cut every single time. I just get out, get out of the room. Don't, don't disturb me. I'm watching Amadeus. This film is absolutely incredible. And it makes you, it has the brilliant device of telling the story through the eyes of a Almost certainly unreliable narrator. None of this happened the way the Salieri in this movie tells it, right? Fucking, you know, the whole thing is a theatrical device. But it tells the story of Amadeus from from the point of view of someone who dreamt of being that good and isn't. And when he sees this little dickhead who happens to be the most talented musician who's ever lived up to that point, waltzing in and sort of farting around and, and, and just making an absolute spectacle of himself. But when he sits down at a piano, he just does things that make you feel like you've just seen God, you know, or, or heard God singing, huh. right? And think, you little fucker, how dare you? How dare you have all this talent when you're just this is vulgar little shit? I'm the one who's dedicated my whole life to, to this. Why am I only mediocre? And that that fury, that furious jealousy, it just gives you this fantastic perspective on Mozart. And then Mozart being as driven as he is and like just possessed by demons, you have all that. You have, like It's a music biopic, right? And the thing about these sort of biopics is that it was why Oppenheimer was so good this, this, um, this year, is that to give the 
the story, the biopic, that kind of driving force so that it's not just your standard, they were born and then they did a thing and then they were successful and ah, right, typical. Every biopic has the same beats and they can get a bit samey. The ones that really stand out are the ones that go, here's here's a way of looking at this story that really just taps into your emotions. And this film is brilliant. And this, it's Milos Forman is the guy who directed uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Every now and again, he he sort of pops up. He does. He he, he was he regularly made films. He's he's passed away now, I, I believe. Um, and he would just regularly make films. But every sort of third or fourth film that he did would just absolutely sort of knock your socks off. And honestly, there are you know socks completely knocked off watching this. Absolutely unbelievable. And the way in which. I'm still not someone who's going to go and watch a, a, a Mozart opera. I recognise some of his music, and he clearly was brilliant. You can just feel it, even though it's not your your music. You can just you can just tell how good he is because it's just just got this elegance to it. But the way he puts the the great works of Amadeus's career in context for Amadeus's own life and for Salieri's life, you know, watching and hating and plotting against him, it just adds this drama. And all he's done is release an opera. Maybe that opera does well. Maybe it doesn't. But it just it just grips you. It's like, every, you know, the way the 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 tribunal scenes in Oppenheimer, really, how much, why why do they matter? You know, Oppenheimer's already designed the bomb that beat the, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the Axis powers, right? That, that, that destroyed Hiroshima and ended the war and saved millions of lives. The, the kind of the Cold War is kind of a separate thing, but this tribunal about Oppenheimer's personal reputation shouldn't matter that much but you end up being utterly gripped by it in the film and that's what this film does is it makes the the, the personal enmity between these these two characters which is much more on one side than the other anyway just so gripping and but and just honestly from beginning to end even though it's about classical music in the 18th century and people with frilly collars on i was gripped like it was a fucking gangster film and I've, I've gone on at some length, but it's just amazing. And the sound and the costumes and the it's just, it, the whole thing is an absolute spectacle uh, for, you know, emotionally as well as kind of visually. And this is actually showing at the end of the month in, in London at a representation. And I'm, I'm hoping to get out and see it and I'll be able to tick it off my bucket list. But just, I think the thing is, is that, what I've what I've done just now probably hasn't put Amadeus on your bucket list, right? It probably might not even have persuaded you to even see it, mate. But what I'm hoping it expresses is the emotional connection I have to that film is why it's on my list. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's why Amadeus is just oh, it's just fucking hell, man. And 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 that's again, this is not about me saying everyone should feel the way I do about this film. I, I want everyone to have a bunch of films that they feel as strongly about as I feel about this one. Do you see what I mean? Because I think that's what, I think that's, if, I'm sorry, speaking for you here, mate. That's what I think we like to share on this pod is that emotional response to a movie when it just really gets you inside. You say, I want to shout from the rooftops about this film. Not necessarily to make everyone else watch it, but I hope people do. But just because I want to celebrate the fact that cinema does that to people, you know? Okay, yeah, I think you've uh, you've done it justice. So, waxed a bit lyrical there. Um, so I've done, yeah, I've done four now, which means I've got ten left. I've got ten left, and you've got seven left. So we're, we're, I'm catching up to you, and then we can just do I've one got, each. I've got eight left, I think. Eight left. All right. So my next one for number three is 
I said to myself, I can only pick one from this director, and it's Christopher Nolan, so I picked Interstellar. Interesting. Because I feel like out of all of his films visually, this one's the most stunning and striking, and I think it's the one that everyone should should see in terms of the visuals of it all. Mm -hmm. I feel like you can enjoy all of Christopher Nolan's films Anywhere, I think you should watch every single one of them on a big screen. But if you had to pick just one, it, for me, it would be Interstellar, without a doubt. Now, this is funny because I agree with you. I, Interstellar is my favourite Nolan film, and the, the grandeur and scale of it, and just the just it's the big ideas and the big stories and the you know the everything that it, that it does with with the Zimmers. I mean, Hans. It's not like Hans Zimmer. You know, Hans Zimmer could just. If he if he tripped over his 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 record collection, if he if he you know if if he had all of his own scores on vinyl and he tripped over the box, it doesn't matter which one fell out, it would be a classic, right? But there's something about Interstellar which just just goes to places that I I couldn't even imagine the way he manages to mix it all in with orchestra and organ music. Having said all that, I thought you were going to do a different. Nolan film than that. I thought you might maybe have had Inception on this list instead of Interstellar. No, I think in terms of visuals, it's it's Interstellar. In terms of the best film, it's Inception. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you could you could get away with just watching that at home because at its very core, it is a it's a heist movie in a brain, like mm-hmm. in in someone's dreams, and there are some magnificent visual pieces in the film. Mm-hmm. But I don't think any of them compare to the visual, the visuals yeah. of Interstellar at all. Like, don't don't come close. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean about every. You should watch, try and watch every Nolan film on the cinema because I I I think I have done. I haven't seen Insomnia, haven't seen Prestige, but pretty much everything else. I saw uh, Dark Knight a couple of times once with you. Dark Knight Rises I saw a couple of times, including on an IMAX. Inception I saw at the IMAX at the BFI. That was extraordinary. Um, Interstellar, I saw at the BFI IMAX, and that was... I mean, look, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think the interesting thing about Interstellar is that some of the best bits of Interstellar, despite everything you've said about the visuals and the incredible kind of power of it, is that some of the best stuff in that film is just Matthew McConaughey acting, watching home... Watching yeah, message, messages, Yeah, messages from his family. And I remember that scene where the, um, the scientist who stays behind... Um, when they go down to the water planet and it's going to take them years and when they get back he's um he decided not to go into stasis because he just didn't want to just lie and sleep and dream which means he's like 20 years older by the time he um he gets out david gyasi yeah and i just remember the way they look at each other and he just and I think they didn't need to hate, even have that in the movie, but I think it was just such a dramatic way. Nolan does this. He'll, he'll give you a scene or a device that just says, and that's why this is a thing. And and just and just what and just walking in and seeing someone age like that, you go, that the whole idea that they're they're going through time as well as space just really comes home because he makes it personal like that. And all those personal touches, the fact that it's that he, he's so in that film, so perfectly ties what it means to the individual people in the story, as well as to what it means to everyone in the world. And I think that's what makes it so good for me. I think to touch on that scene where they come back and the scientist has been there all that time, mm-hmm. and you said when they look at each other, I think it's the way that they don't look at each other because they're, like, mm. they're, they're almost like embarrassed and like kind of, well, 
maybe they, not embarrassed. Just they don't even have the words to describe what what what's happened. Yeah, they're to them just so like point, yeah. appalled at what yeah has happened. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, look, I agree with you. I mean, I I think Interstellar is extraordinary. I mean, we talked about Oppenheimer maybe didn't need to be seen at the IMAX, no. um, but it's still, I think, you know, all, all Nolan makes full use of of the cinema, though. You, sh- it, you know, he really is. He really is someone who's. I, I can't imagine myself waiting to see Nolan's next film at home instead of going to see it in the cinema. Well, it, you know, even the ones I haven't yeah. liked, do you know what I mean? You have to, it's like Dunkirk. The reason I don't like Dunkirk is the lack of scale. And you only really see that when you actually go and watch it at the IMAX and go, oh, I don't like what he's done here. And I know there's people who love that film, you know, but it's like, he really does, you know, all that stuff about shooting on film, not digital, that's his personal thing. But I think he successfully makes the argument for watching all of his films on the big screen, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Interstellar is yeah, magnificent. Um, funnily enough, right, the last... I think Christopher Nolan does... I mean, for, for someone whose films are all hugely commercially successful, he is oddly divisive in the sense that not everyone's into what he's doing. And I think you have you have these constituents of people, you know people who are fellow Nolan fans, and they go, oh, but they don't like Interstellar, but they do like Dunkirk, or but they, you know, they didn't like Tenet, but they do like... Um, uh, they do like you know Interstellar or they do like Dunkirk and Interstellar is one of those films that not all of his fans fully buy into which I, I've never quite got myself yeah me me, me neither I've, I've never understood that hmm. okay so you've done three um, I'm going to do my next uh, pair um, these ones will well at least one of these will come as absolutely no surprise to you mate the, the next um the next two that I'm doing are Once Upon a Time in America yep, and The Outlaw Josie Wales. Now, again, these just got written down. These are just the order they got written down in. I wasn't putting too much thought into them, but although there's a certain amount of alphabetical going on here. But um, Outlaw Josie Wales is my favourite Clint Eastwood film. Probably my favourite Western. If I rack my... I mean, I could maybe put some of the Dollars, Dollars Trilogy films above it, but I mean, it's... So brilliant, so beautifully shot. The cinematography is amazing. Um, it's one of those films that really brings the world in which it happens to life. Those parts of um, the West and Midwest that were kind of um, the battleground of the Civil War and then, then then life after the Civil War, which is so beautifully shot. Clint Eastwood, you know, never been better as an actor or never done better as a director in this movie. And it's just magnificent. It's just a fucking magnificent film. And I've watched it the first, you know, I've watched it on a, an old fashioned TV from back in the day. I've watched it on a laptop and I've watched it a couple of times on a proper big telly at home. And I just don't feel that those viewings did it justice. So, you know, that's why that's on my list. And Once Upon a Time in America is quite simply my favourite um, film of all time. Yeah. And I just don't feel like I could, if I'm writing a cinematic bucket list, I can't leave my favourite film off time of all time off it and also because Leone was although this isn't as obviously like a cinematic kind of you know fill the big screen with 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 incredible detail and scale like his westerns are I mean like Once Upon a Time in the West and Good, the Bad and the Ugly they just look fucking massive do you know what I mean you watch those films on a TV at home and they look massive do you know what I mean but any um, any Scorsese any sorry any Leone film is you know absolutely you know, designed to be watched on the big screen because he he just he does scale and you know there are some amazing shots of like you know bridges and an old period New York which were you know just beautiful. So yeah, that's why that's on the big screen. I mean, I I don't think either of those are your favourite films, mate. But 
No. Um, but because you're more done... of a Western guy when it comes to Leone, anyway. Yeah. Um, but you you have said on several occasions that once upon once upon a time in America is your favorite film of all time, and I think for somebody who's watched as many films as you have, that's. Uh, a yeah, a clear you know indication of how much you appreciate that film. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard people give some really articulate, well argued, well argued reasons why it's not a very good film, which <laughs> I have to just not get angry because I just don't have the I don't have the um, the impartiality to say anything other than this is the best film of all time. Um, it's got this amazing kind of flashback, flash forward, you know, t- time shifting structure, and the brilliance of the film is that over almost four hours of running time it just really brings home how long Robert De Niro's character has had to regret what he did as a young man and I don't think there's many or enough gangster films that really just do that um to just say you know what he's had a long time to think about all the stuff he did all the people he killed all the damage he did he, he raped the woman he supposedly loved I mean, that's not a plot spoiler and he has had a fucking long time to just sit and it's why the first thing you see in the flash for the first time you see De Niro was an old man he's looking at his reflection because you get the feeling that guy's been looking at himself in the mirror a lot over the past 30 years you know yeah but that's you know I could I could do a whole pod just in one time in America and you know people could listen to it to go to sleep but the, yeah that that that's those two. These next couple of choices that I have have been a sort of representation of two genres. One genre that I don't necessarily like and one genre that everyone should like. But it was to kind of pay homage to the importance of seeing certain genres and certain films of that genre in the cinema. Mm-hmm. Kind of what I touched on at the start. So I'll go for I'll go for the genre that I don't like first, which is horror. I don't particularly like horror, but I do understand the appeal of horror to some people. And I think the, the, the impact and the emotional response from a horror movie is only heightened by going into a big, you know, echoey, dark room full of strangers. Um, mm-hmm. That makes it scary. I mean, obviously, it's scary watching a watching a horror movie and then going you have going to have to walk your two dogs uh, last thing at night. Yeah, That's yeah. There's there's two gr- there's two perfect ways to watch a horror film: late at night in your house, and late at night in the cinema. So I've cho- I've just chosen. It was hard to choose just one horror film here, but I chose the one that I'd seen in the cinema because I've not seen um, Alien in the cinema and I've not mm-hmm. seen The Shining in the cinema, so I didn't feel it was fair to say, mm-hmm. see this film in the cinema. So I've picked Get Out. Yeah. Which is not as horror as probably Alien or The Shining, mm-hmm. but it's still got horror elements um, in it. And yeah, I think we absolutely loved this film. We went to see it in the cinema. We were just absolutely astounded at how good it was. Um. Just it's it's a masterpiece from you know start to finish. It just it just fits perfectly together, doesn't it? For a directorial debut, um, you've got Daniel Kaluuya's first kind of big, big film um, appearance where he's like the lead role. He yeah, he, he, yeah, carrying the film in pretty much every frame. You know, there's so many things depend on how. You know, a, a, there's a close-up of him and his reaction. How many times does that film depend on him doing that, getting it right with his eyes and, and everything else, you know? 
Yeah, everything's just kind of woven together so well. You've got a really good supporting cast of um, what's his name? I can't remember the dad's name, but I know that Catherine Keener's in it, and his name's Bradley something. Bradley. Yeah, Bradley Whitford from the West Wing. Bradley and, Whitford, yeah, yeah. and you know all these people, and it's just it's also well done. You've got the kind of comedy elements that um, obviously uh, Jordan Peele's going to do very well because that's his bread and butter from uh, what's his name. His uh, yeah, TSA key, key, yeah, key, key and Peel. Oh, the TSA guy, it's amazing. The TSA, yeah. Um, it's it. It just has everything. It's got a. It's got a solid story. It's not one of these Eli Roth fucking disaster pieces that is just slasher or just over the top and gratuitous. It's. It's. Its strengths lie in its believability. It's got some sort of far fetched. You know neuroscience and it where, yeah, yeah but all you have to believe is that one thing and that's that the everything only thing else you is have to utter, believe. everything else is utterly believable the way people but, behave the whole other the whole world is yeah kind of the the kind of believing that you know black people serve um a purpose for white people to kind of extend their lives and yeah mm-hmm. i thought it was it was expertly done and if you can get over the kind of the the brain transplant sorry kind mm-hmm. of element of it which is something that in the future in fifty years it's something that they might have been able to achieve at some point yeah it's, it's not I mean, something that's completely it's not completely it's not like a nun coming out of the fucking ground in some monastery in fucking you know Bosnia yeah. and then haunting and you know having all these supernatural powers that's the only thing where you have to kind of go all right okay that's a li- that's yeah. a little bit far fetched and then the rest of it is you know just it plays on so many real life kind of stigmas and scenarios and i think what what i love the most about this was was the ending so i you know i love a good ending and the inception mm-hmm. ending is one of the best endings of all time yeah um i've told i've told you about um my wife your stepmom watching that in the cinema what inception yeah no right imax makes her fall asleep Right. Apart from Mission Impossible films, where basically you're being thrown around like you're on a roller coaster, there's something about the IMAX format and the kind of big, overwhelming screen that just she keeps leaning back in her seat until eventually she she dozes off, and she fell asleep for about thirty five minutes of Inception, and she woke up and whispered, "What's going on?" I'm going, I can't even fucking begin to tell you yeah, what's go going back on. To sleep. Yeah, go back to sleep. So the thing was, we're watching the end of Inception, and the whole story is is played out the way it plays out. And then Leonardo DiCaprio spins his top on on the thing, and then it closes up on the top, and then you've got to decide for yourself whether it wobbles or whether it doesn't. And there was this audible gasp from the whole audience, and and my missus is like, "What? What? What's the what's the big deal?" And I'm like, "God, let's get home. I'll buy you a cup. Of, I'll get you a cup of coffee, and I'll walk you through everything you missed." Anyway, sick. anyway, yeah. But, um, then, but, but then there's a similar like great so, moment in, in well the in ending of that. Well. The ending in Get Out is that okay, right? If you've not seen it, then what the fuck you've been doing? But he basically manages to escape this terrible white family who've tried to transplant his brain um, into into someone. Uh, a transplant, uh, this white guy's brain, into Daniel Kaluuya. He's managed to escape that. He's killed the, the horrible white family. And he's um, he's killed his psycho ex-girlfriend who trapped, uh, kind of lured him there to, into the mm-hmm. trap. And you think, oh, fuck's sake, he's finally, he's got, he's got out of it. And then you see the kind of blue and red lights and you think... You're kidding. They're going to see a black guy coming out of this scenario where there's a bunch of white people dying on the floor. 
And and there's a little smile on her face, isn't there? On the white She's woman's like, face, ah, there's a little smile like, like, oh, you're in trouble because I'm if a that's... white woman in America. You know what? Like, I'm going to get away with this. And luckily, it's his trusty old pal from the TSA who's driving his. But but, uh, but there's that car. but there's that moment, isn't there? And in the cinema, that moment is you hear a whole audience go, oh, because oh, he's fucked, isn't he? And, and and the fact the brilliance that of what Jordan Peele's done is that he didn't need to, to he didn't need to make a speech in that movie about police and black people, did he? He didn't have to tell people anything. He just had to show you the blue lights and the little chirp of the siren and the look on Daniel Kaluuya's face and the look on the white woman's face and the whole audience, the whole audience, doesn't matter where they're from, just had that gut feeling, oh, he's fucked. Yeah. And that's brilliant. That's, that is brilliant, isn't it? And that's really... That, and, and that's why you watch that on a... That, I mean, th- those, those moments become iconic. It's like the moment in, in Halloween where the, the, the thing pans around and the light changes and you realise that Michael Myers is standing behind Jamie Lee Curtis and the whole audience goes, ah! you know, and I, I remember this bit when I went to see The Thing at the cinema. And the thing about The Thing is that it's just an incredibly intense film and you feel like you're like gripping the side of your seat the whole way. And then there's just one moment where it just cuts to like where three guys have like tied up on the sofa waiting while all, all hell breaks loose. And they're just sitting there tied up, sitting next to each other, crammed into this little sofa. And the whole audience laughed because they just needed some fucking ease, release some tension. And those iconic moments in a horror movie in the cinema, that, that, that's, that's, why, that's why it's on the big screen, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, funnily enough, I thought about The Shining. The Shining isn't on my list, but it, it easily could be. It easily could be the sort of thing you might sort of recommend. Yeah, so yeah. But, but Get Out, yeah. And then I'll, I'll just do my other one. So this was to kind of encompass the entire genre of comedy. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to be said about watching a film with, you know, it's fun watching it with, you know, like your family of like four or five mm-hmm. people or whatever, but in mean, a big cinema screen, you know, of up to maybe 100 people. Mm-hmm. So I picked just my favourite comedy film of all time, which is uh, Into Shabla. Mm-hmm. That that was it. Um, that's the TSA going past. <laughs> another anyway, another young black life to save. Um, I, so I picked I picked into Shabba just because I watched it in school uh, for my higher French. It was just I think the teacher at that point was like, I can't be fucked teaching you. Let's just put this on for a couple hours, and it was really mm. good. And it ended up being one of my favorite films. Just how funny it was, how heartwarming it was. But it has it has a it has a laugh very regularly. It has so many funny jokes, but not it's not many real. not many easy laughs though. I would say they don't go for the sort of the easy the easy gag, do they? No, they they make jokes about you know the guy being a paraplegic, and they make jokes about. Um, this guy being a kind of deadbeat former you know convict. It's but it's very much built on the characters in the story and where it's they're coming real. from. Yeah, it's yeah. jokes that you would you would expect these kind of people to make with each other, and like jokes that you would say maybe mm-hmm. amongst your friends that are kind of like a sharp intake of breath. But yeah, I think it didn't. This was just my comedy film because I've not actually seen it in a cinema. I would like to see it in a cinema, but I, I don't think it will ever be released in a cinema. Just we well, just have to just have to keep is. an eye out. Just have to keep but an eye out if you ever fancy it's, it. It was more for just anyone that you know thinks, "Oh, I've never seen this this film." It's a it's a comedy film, um, and people don't. I don't think people watch comedy films in the cinema as much because you know it's yeah. it's not something that you want to spend ten ten pounds a ticket on, and then it's it's something that you could have maybe waited till it came out on you know DVD or you know on streaming. Um, but yeah, that that was just but, kind but, of my but, own but laughing it. laughing together with other people. If you can get it, it's magic, isn't it? It's lightning in a bottle. If you can get that, um, 
you know, I mean, what have I seen in the cinema that, that had that similar kind of experience? Um, I got to see a Mel Brooks film in the cinema, Spaceballs. That was a lot of fun. Went to see it with a bunch of friends. So that's not by any means the best Mel Brooks film, but I got to see that in the cinema. That, that you know, that's a big, big thing. And, I, you know, I'm the sort of person who, who makes a list of the films I've seen at the cinema, which is why I can look, look this stuff up. You contrast that with a film called True Identity. Have you seen White Chicks? Yeah, it's a terrible film. Well, imagine White Chicks, except the storyline isn't one of the Wayans brothers dressing up as white girls. It's uh, Lenny Henry dressing up as a, a, a white American, Italian-American gangster. And not at all funny for an hour and a half, and that oh, that dear. that was like bite your bite your your head off. But then I saw Hot Shots at the cinema, which was a lot of fun as well. And none of these even yeah. have to be the best comedies, you know. But I think seeing an absolute classic comedy with a room full of people laughing with you and it 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 adds to the experience, doesn't it? Definitely. Very good. Okay, um, so I'll do a couple now because I think eventually I will I will catch up with you on the on the total number of films that we've got left to do. Two more. Uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to see what thematically why I should read these out at the same time. I think they're both just films that have a bit of spectacle that would really benefit from being seen on the big screen. It's The Right Stuff and Aliens, the second Alien film. Because I had the chance to see Alien at the cinema. Um, I guess in a couple of years it'll be the 40th anniversary, maybe Aliens will be on there, but it's available in London actually, Aliens is, is, is being shown in the Prince Charles, usually on an all-nighter double bill, so it's just a case of, can I actually do that, can I actually go and then stay out all night and then get the fucking first tube home and then be any use at home with a toddler in a house and all that sort of thing, but one of these days I would love to go and see that at the cinema, Aliens, just because, you know, James Cameron, James Cameron action sci-fi deserves to be seen on the big screen right and that's yeah. one of his best films I mean it's just an absolute absolute belter um the other one the right stuff I don't think you've seen this have you no this is a a long and epic film but it's about it starts with the test pilot Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier for the first time okay. uh, so getting a getting a, a test a test jet to, to go beyond Mach one. And then he, um, that is the, um, the the impetus for the space program and NASA because they, you know, they get all the German rocket scientists in and they, they manage to take, breaking the sound barrier into getting out of Earth's orbit and, and orbiting a couple of satellites and the start of the space program and everything. And it's just this incredibly epic tale of people who were strapped into incredibly fast moving sort of piles of steel with full of rocket fuel took their life in their hands and went out to the only the only remaining frontier, you know, speed and space, you know. And it's just visually incredible. It's got, you know, things going wrong in space. It's just got this incredible kind of epic sweep to it. I've seen it in a number of formats. The first time I ever saw it was on a, a National Express coach from London to Sunderland. Uh, and that wasn't even on a very big screen. <laughs> so I think I, I, it's about time I went to see it on a really, really big epic scope screen, just because that kind of, it looks absolutely phenomenal. You know, once I, when I got it on Blu-ray, I went, oh, how's this really meant to look? Blu-ray, big flat screen TV, just stunning. And I, I just think it's the one where I know, I just know that when I get that up on the big screen, it's going to be just what, what it, a lot of these films are here it's it's as as much as i love this film it's i haven't had the full experience yet until i see it on the big screen 
and that's why that one's on my list because the right stuff is and and the young cast that it had at the time who went on to be sort of big names people like Ed Harris and Dennis Quaid and people like that it's just magnificent film but that's that's another two of mine I have how many have I got left I've got one two three four five six left how many have you got left five okay we're catching up we might as well yeah I think I think we're doing all right now cool right so I think if you do one more of two that's, and I do one. Yeah, that's it. Then yeah, then we'll yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'll be there or thereabouts. So speaking of James Cameron, I've picked Avatar. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple this one, isn't it? It's purely for the visuals. Avatar one, Avatar two, double bill, whatever you want to do. That can be you can count it all as a one. Um that's uh Yeah, see it on a big screen. See, 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 see it on the biggest screen that you can because it's you know when when I watched the second one I kind of realised what what I mean I still I still prefer early Cameron right I still I still feel like I, I wish he would find time between these films to do something else but he's clearly dedicated his life to this that's fine but what I realise people are getting from Avatar when I watch the second one is for three hours you just get immersed into this entirely different world and the only way to be fully immersed in it is to go and see it on the big screen. Yeah, I mean, I watched Avatar two on the TV, and it was still beautiful. Mm-hmm. I've got, I've got quite a good telly, mm-hmm. so it was, it still did the film justice. But it was more of a, yeah, I probably should have gone to the cinema to see that one. Um, it's just like when you see the first one. I, I don't think I saw the first one on an IMAX, but I saw it on a pretty big screen. And there's stuff, stuff like those, those kind of all-terrain sort of trucks with the massive tires on them that are basically three times the height of a person. You get this close-up of that of like for scale, like Sam Worthington or his blue Smurf like avatar creature in the foreground, and one of these massive trucks going past him in the background. You just see how big it is. It's just the sheer scale is so immersive up on a up on the big screen. It really is um, genuinely worth it because you know he he's he, you know no one's ever accused uh, James Cameron of shit visual effects or shit CGI. Do you know what I mean? There are some, there are some slightly shonky bits in the first Terminator film where you can tell it's not really Arnie. But apart from that, when he's got money to spend and the, the, the equipment at his disposal, everything he does just looks absolutely magnificent up on screen, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, even though it came out 14 years ago, that Avatar film still looks great now, but the mm-hmm. second one's just obviously next level. He mm-hmm. spent, Spent fourteen years on it, um, and about four hundred. Well, I don't think we'll ever fully find out how much Avatar two cost because it's all he's filmed stuff back to back. What's the yeah. official published? Uh, Three hundred and fifty to four hundred and sixty million dollars. Probably four hundred and sixty million. Let's but it look. But the thing is, it looks like it looks like it's had that much money spent on it. Sometimes you look at these like Star Wars films or these other like Marvel films that, that you find out cost three hundred million. You go, I don't, I can't see where the money's gone. That film looks worth every penny of what he spent on it. Avatar two. Yeah, it, it's much better than the first one. Obviously, um, he spent a lot of time on it, refining it and making it look. Mm-hmm. beautiful so i think if i was to pick one it would probably be the second one the first one's got a better story mm-hmm. um but the visuals in the second one are much better so it just kind of depends on your preference if you'd rather mm-hmm. watch a better story probably watch the first one in the cinema i mean watch them both mm-hmm. if you had to pick one you'd probably have to pick it based on your preferences i think well they, they basically they did cgi underwater people were asking him how he made managed to make the water scene look realistic because i film in the fucking water 
but and then everyone's scared. Well, you know, then obviously you couldn't do that fourteen years ago because the 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 elec- the electric you, know, you you have like like motion capture suits on, don't you? And he basically found a way to make them work underwater and not short out. So that's how much effort he goes to to make it because he doesn't want it to look like fucking Aquaman. He wants it to look like that is actually a person or a, an alien creature swimming in this uncharted sea with a with a whale. And he goes, fucking hell, I, I believe everything I'm watching, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, think- I, mean, I can, I can see, totally see why that's on your list, mate. So does that mean I've got four left? Four left. So if I read two out, then we'll both have four left, yeah? Yep. So this is another two where I'm just picking like favourite films of mine, really. Um, Blowout and Strange Days, which we've both done as hidden gems for the podcast. Um, Strange Days is just Catherine Bigelow doing absolutely everything she's ever wanted to do in one movie. Basically, Cameron gave her the, you know, got her the financial backing, helped her with the script for this kind of really ambitious sci-fi story. It's got some really cool, powerful sensory perception stuff where basically what people are doing is that they're plugging themselves in. So they're not just, it's not just virtual reality. It's like you're there, you know, and people use it for nefarious purposes like watching murders or or, or, re, or reliving sexual encounters and stuff. It's, you know, 20 years ahead of like Charlie Brooker coming up with stuff like this for Black Mirror. Um, she wields, you know, her usual kind of violent, powerful, amped-up action that's actually examining every all the characters in the story really closely. It's a fucking magnificent film. It's it's a complete one-off. It doesn't one hundred percent work. It's so wild and so ambitious, and didn't do very well at the box office. But it's Catherine Bigelow going full Catherine Bigelow, and that deserves to be seen on a big screen um, because you know. Sometimes she does much more restrained films than that. And when she goes fucking full bore, you know, both shotguns, you know, shotgun in each hand, blowing shit up, you think, right, I'm watching that. Um, and the other one, Blowout. I mean, we talked about Blowout for the um, uh, for the pod. We've done it twice as a hidden gem because it was the first ever hidden gem before you joined me and started doing the podcast with me, mate. And then we did it as a as a second because it fit with our conspiracy features, remember? Yeah. Um, and... I know I mean, you liked it, but didn't love it. This is more, I mean, more of a film for me. But I think it's undeniable that the sheer cinematic technique that's gone into that is, you know, at the highest level because Brian De Palma just totally went for it. And some of the stuff like there's a bit where John Travolta dives into the water to rescue Nancy Allen, who's been in the crash, and the light just changes, and Dennis Franz's character is just seen behind him, kind of scurrying away. I just want to see that on the full frame. It was good enough on my telly. I just want to see that in the full frame. I want to hear the sound design that because it, it, it's all about the sound. I just Brian De Palma's cinematic technique is 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 incredible. You know, I've been lucky enough to see one or two of his films, you know, at the cinema, and I just, you know, he is one of the all time masters of taking out this, you know, the filmmaker's toolbox and making things look just incredibly cinematic. So that's why that's on my list. Uh, just two great films by two of my favourite filmmakers. No, not much more thought to it than that. And now I think if we, I've got four left. You've got four left. We can just, um, we can just uh, play a bit of uh, bucket list tennis now, mate. Yes. So my next one is um, Gladiator. Yes. Obviously, I've not seen this on the cinema because I was four when mm-hmm. it came out, um, and I would love to have seen it on the cinema. But I have seen it. Um, I would. Love to have seen just you know that first battle sequence, 
the shots of the Colosseum. Um, and I will definitely go and see Gladiator 2, Gladiator Harder uh, when it comes out, because I'm not sure what that film's going to be about, but I'll definitely go and see that in a big screen. Um, yeah, I think it sort of speaks for itself, doesn't it? It's a, it's a ancient Rome war slash gladiator movie with Russell Crowe, Ridley Scott, um, you know, a top cast, a really good story, even though it's a lot of fiction. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those films that, you know, when you just, you kind of say, oh yeah, that, that film was made for the big screen. That's got to be up there with one of them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to go and see it at the cinema when it came out. Um, it marked a return to form for Ridley Scott, who started the 90s with uh, a hit film and an Academy Award nomination uh, for Best Director. And then nothing that he did in the 90s for about seven or eight years after that worked out, some of which was unfair. Yeah, he did good films that didn't connect with an audience. And then he just lands and goes, I'm doing a Roman epic. Fuck it, here we go. And everyone just went... Oddly enough, Gladiator got a bit of a mixed uh, reaction critically when it came out, if you can believe that. Uh, but by the time the Oscars came around, everyone just went, you know, it was an absolute box office smash. Audiences fucking loved it, you know, and then everyone just went, yep, you can have best picture, you can have best actor. For, probably unfairly, Ridley Scott didn't win best director, despite the brilliance of it. And Hans Zimmer didn't win for his music, even though the music is tremendous. But it's just. Um, you know, it's first of all, it's an incredibly compelling story. Russell Crowe's, you know, general is betrayed and has to fight his way back as a, you know, a slave and then a gladiator. I'm watching that. Russell Crowe announced himself as a worldwide superstar. It was the perfect film at the perfect time for him in the same way that Casino Royale was for Daniel Craig. He just went, right, he's, he's fucking ripping this up, you know? And then, um, and then what you get is uh, the Coliseum and Ridley Scott, probably setting the template for making CGI work well by basically saying I CGI what I I CGI scale and uh, crowd and various things onto a basic template so that it looks so real and on you know 20 years on the special effects still still hold up for his recreation of ancient Rome his um, uh, you know the Colosseum and just when they when they're going in towards the Colosseum for the first time, the gladiators, that big German guy and uh, Jimon Honsu and, and Russell Crowe, and they're going around and they can see this massive stadium looming in front of them. I mean, the first time you went to a big football stadium when you were a kid, you get that feeling, don't you? Wow, that's big. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then they're waiting inside and they can hear the crowd and they, the, the doors are thrown open and they go out and they're standing there staring at a 50,000 crowd in the actual fucking Colosseum. And you're just sort of like, it's just... You know, it's one of those films where, you know, bring bring some pads and put them on, you know, and put them in front of your seat because your jaw's going to hit the fucking floor, you know? Um, yeah, Gladiator. You know, if the, that's a film that if it wasn't, if I hadn't seen it, that would be on my bucket list for sure. Um, so, yeah, that's another one where, I mean, you know, you, you, you that's one where you're going to have to look out in your local, the local cinemas that show classic movies. You just need to keep an eye out for that. Very good. Shall I do one now? Yep. So the the next one of mine is a film from the early 70s, uh, so I never would have got to see it when it came out. Um, I only heard about this. It's called Amacord. It's directed by Federico Fellini. And I got into this film because I love cinema. You hear about, like, Italian films and, you know, the unique traits that they bring. Pardon me. 
you hear about the unique traits that they bring to the cinema. Um, and Fellini is one of these great exponents with eight and a half and the Dolce Vita. There was something about Amacord that just really caught my attention. I said, oh, this sounds really interesting. I'm going to watch it. And then I was blown away when I saw it. Now, it's on this list because it is far and away my favourite uh, Fellini film. One of my favourite films of all time. And I do think you probably would get almost the full effect of the film watching it at home if you've got a good telly and everything else. But there's something just really beautiful and magnificent about it. It's partly because some of Fellini's earlier films were, were in black and white. And this is him making full use of colour. But he tells the story of this small town in the 30s when fascism is, is around in Italy, um, which is, it's an undercurrent and it's in the background. It's not really, a, you know, it's not really about the battle between, you know, fascists and progressives or anything like that, but it's, it's at that time and it tells you something about the people and the characters. And it just tells this wonderful story of like growing up in this small town and the different things they saw, the different weird characters of this just some absolutely extraordinary beautiful scenes like there's a cruise ship kind of moored you know on, on the coast and everyone goes out in boats and or, or even swims just to get near the boat and it's all lit up at night and there's also a scene where a leg of a of a of a car race a motorsport race is, is is being held in their area and it's like all foggy and you see these cars kind of bursting through like the mist in the night but it's really just the story of like a, a, a young guy, obviously a surrogate for the direction of Sir Fellini, growing up and his experiences, his attractions, his passions, and how weird it was to be growing up in, you know, in fascist Italy while all this is going on. And it's just this magnificent portrait of a small town and the people in it. But he does it in this beautiful dreamlike way. And it's another one of those films I talked about Vertigo and I talked and we, we both talked about Twelve Years a Slave about when a film when a film has that effect on you, you know? When a film really makes you feel something. I just want to feel that in the cinema. I want to feel that in a dark, big room with you know, with you know, on a big screen where I can just feel that to the full effect. I could maybe put Cinema Paradiso on here, you know, for the same reason, you know, just film that makes you fall in love with a small town in Italy and makes you fall in love with cinema. But this Amacord is just, just a masterful visual and sensory experience. It just makes you feel, you know, you know, feel things that I've never felt watching any other film. So that's what's on my list. Okay. Um, so that sort of batting that back to you now, mate, for, for one of yours. So I think we've got three left just to be. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Three left. Right. So I have gone for. I've gone for an animated film. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get to see it in the cinema. And I think I would have liked to, but Spirited Away. That is, do you, do you know what literally the next film on my list is to talk about? Spirited Away. Spirited Away. So why don't we just do the, both of these together yeah, let's do and it then together. that makes absolutely. it two left. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I saw it when I was a kid and then my partner and I watched it recently. Um, I would say within the past kind of year or so. Um, and it's just one of those films where like it's it's all beautifully drawn and it's lovely. I would love to, I would love to see a little bit of a remaster on it just because it is coming up for 22 mm. years old now. But yeah, I would love to see a, a a remaster and see that film in the cinema. Personally, I just the story's great. It visually looks amazing, um, and I would just love to see it just on a much bigger screen because I think we watched it on um, when when we first watched it. It was on one of those kind of old tellies, you know, the big silver mm-hmm. ones, and and then I've watched it on my TV recently, which is a it's a it's a 
it's a it's a four K TV, but I would love mm-hmm. to just see it on a nice big big screen. Sit down, nice big thing of popcorn on a drink, and just you know kind of get lost in that world again. Yeah, I mean there is talk of it getting a full remaster, so that's something to look forward to. That would be lovely. Um, yeah, I mean it's part of that Studio Ghibli thing, and we touched on Ghibli when we were talking about the Golden Age of Animation because we he said how we talked about Pixar and we talked about Disney kind of finding its form again in the early nineties, but Ghibli was doing things like that on their own timescale from the 80s onwards. Um, and, you know, Miyazaki is a, is a genius. And it's it's a great idea for a story, isn't it? It's the Japanese take on Alice in Wonderland. Um, but with, with all the things that you would hope that you'd get from that, right? You'd say, okay, something like Alice in Wonderland, but give it a Japanese flavour. It's like there's all the fucking Japanese flavor you could possibly want. Do you know what I mean? Visually and the the, the different way that it does and the types of characters that it gives you. And the way it, it, it drops you in the story and you sort of feel for the little girl, don't you? The way she's kind of just cast adrift in this new world and she has to like get like, work in like the furnace or whatever it is. And you just feel you, everything that she feels about being sort of abandoned alone and not understanding anything about this world that she's living in. You really feel it. Do you know what I mean? You really feel this like, like sort of pang inside of like her lost and not knowing what to do, watching her parents turn into pigs because they just ate too much food that didn't belong to them. And now she's got to find some sort of way out. And it's, and it's also just how masterfully drawn and made it is. I remember because your, your little brother will now sit through a whole film now, right? But there was a time when he's, this has got to be like maybe 18 months ago, something like that. But, but when, when he was a lot littler, and, you know, everything you'd watch would be about, you'd watch 20 minutes or something. Do you know what I mean? Which means it's an episode of a TV show and then he can kind of look away and, you know, ask for another biscuit while the theme tune plays and the next episode starts. But you couldn't get him to watch a full hour and a half. And he watched fucking all of Spirited Away. And it was the bit that really got him is that bit, well, you know, there's the, the, the those characters that are sort of a, a floating mask with like a, a monk's cowl type hood behind them and they sort of float around, yeah? And one yeah. of them turns out to be that really odd thing that demands to be bathed and, and just absolutely trashes the place later. But to begin with, you just see a load of them getting off that boat and the floating lanterns as they come off that boat that lands on this. And it's just so mesmeric. And he's just like, I'm just watching him. And he's going, God, this, it's just testament to how powerful it is that this toddler who will not watch anything else for that length of time was just absolutely glued to the screen when there's just it, it, unbelievably beautifully made sort of you know realized world just up there on screen i mean i absolutely love it um and the fact that it's had a remaster suggests that maybe it, it, there is time to um to go and see it um did you hear this about disney changing the ending no so Disney released it on home video in the West in 2003. They obviously got hold of it. Uh, John Lasseter was a huge fan of Miyazaki. He persuaded Disney to pick up the North American distribution. And then this is why it's one of the ones where you need to double check what version you're watching. Um, they, they sort of changed what she says because the... Um, they give her this thing where she goes, oh, she's leaving, and uh, the whole thing's made her feel like she can handle moving to the new place, but there's like a whole like change to... They Americanize the ending. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm now looking back and thinking, what version did I watch, and how does it end in the Japanese version? Yeah. Um, it's funny, because some, I, I, I 
I think it's really arrogant of somebody to touch. Um, I think they only changed the dialogue, but I think it's really arrogant to touch, you know, a, a masterpiece like that just to kind of go, oh, well, the kids will like it better if you do this. That fucking sums up Disney for me. Why would you monkey around with someone else's words like that? Because it's fucking Disney. Yeah. yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess watch out for the remaster and, and watch that new version, but keep an eye out for what version you actually get. Do you know what I mean? Because I'd rather watch the original Japanese. Which I guess if you don't watch the dub version, if you watch it in the original Japanese language, then you don't you don't have to worry about that, right? Yeah, I mean, they could always just change the subtitles, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth keeping an eye out for that. Yeah, so yeah, Spirited Away, I second that. That's why it's on my list. And that was perfectly timed because it actually came at the exact same moment in my list as it did in yours. Amazing. Want to do your next one? Uh, my next one. I felt like I had to kind of uh, pick a Spielberg. So I just picked my favourite Spielberg and went for... Um, it's a hard choice because he's done so many iconic films. Um, but I think it has to be Saving Private Ryan, doesn't it? Yeah. Either, it was between either, that and Jaws and Jurassic Park in terms of visually on a screen. Mm-hmm. I just thought Jaws doesn't really hold up c- cinematography-wise. The reason I'd see Jaws in the cinema would be the kind of tension that it builds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you wonder yeah. if maybe the fake shark looks even worse on the big screen now. Although apparently it did get released recently and people did were very um, complimentary about how, how good it still looked on screen, but... And then Jurassic Park, sort of the same reason, although the mm-hmm. Jurassic Park effects were still brilliant for 1993. Mm-hmm. It would be more for, again, the kind of tension of like the velociraptors in the kitchen scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just went for Saving Private Ryan because I just remember being blown away by that film. And I think it was just a film. Yeah, the I'm... scale of the landings at D-Day and just everything in it, I think, would be appreciated a lot more on a bigger screen. Yeah, I mean, I didn't go and see it in the big screen. I remember watching it on the, on the small screen. Yeah, my, my only caveat about whether I could see this on the big screen is I, I, it might be a bit too overwhelming. Do you know what I mean? Just that, that yeah. opening half hour is some of the most intense stuff that's ever been put on film, you know? But it is it is amazing. And again, if you're talking about a film that just really kind of just reaches inside and grabs hold of your insides and grips them from the beginning of the film to the end, it really does that, doesn't it? Yeah. Again, when you look, when I look back, I get to the point where I'm sort of looking back on Spielberg and going, "How many films have I seen at the cinema?" And I guess you would do the same simply because Spielberg's career does feel like it's winding down a little bit now. Do you know what I mean? I don't feel like yeah, he's got. We've missed those classic, you know, eras. But I mean, what have I seen of his at the cinema? I saw um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I saw it at the cinema. I saw Jurassic Park. Um, I saw Minority Report, uh, an AI, and I saw Munich. I've seen the BFG and uh, the Post and Bridge of Spies. So I've seen more of his more recent stuff. Um, Jurassic Park was a pretty immense experience at the cinema because, you know, seriously, that does look like a, a fucking T-Rex chasing right behind that Jeep, you know? But yeah, I think I think of all his films, like Saving Private Ryan would be an almost too intense experience at the cinema, but that would be really powerful stuff. I agree, mate. Yeah. I just I think I had to kind of put it in. So my my second last is a another one which I've put in simply because you know the the, the spectacle on the big screen is what it's all about is Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, okay. 
which is another four-hour film. So I'm, I'm obviously going to be testing the fucking strength of my bladder um, with these films on my bucket list. <laughs> but I've obviously seen Lawrence of Arabia at, at home, uh, and it's David Lena is absolute peak. I mean, I have to say, right, I, I sometimes feel like I, I respond emotionally more to, to Dr. Zhivago than, than Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia is an absolutely magnificent film. It also tells you a lot about why the Middle East is as fucked as it is. Um, Peter O'Toole gives the absolute performance of a lifetime. It was only unfortunate that that was um, Gregory Peck's year to do To Kill a Mockingbird, otherwise O'Toole would have won the Oscar for that. And, you know, it's just, it's one where David Lean just says, right, sit there, watch this. And, you know, already sort of someone who's pretty great with spectacle, like, um, you know, The Bridge on the River Kwai and all of these other films that he'd done. With with um, Lawrence Arabia, just got the scene, this long, languid scene where this um, enigmatic figure just appears out of the desert and walks towards him, and he's, it turns out he's the chief antagonist that Lawrence Arabia's got to worry about. Absolutely magnificent cinematography. I mean, as good as it gets. They say that they filmed it on seventy millimeter with such good quality film stock that the quality of the the quality of the the H, the HD quality of the um, of the film is eight K. So the televisions, I mean, you know, most televisions can't even show you how good Lawrence of Arabia really looks. So if I could get to see Lawrence of Arabia on a really big screen, on a brand new, freshly, you know, reproduced 70 millimeter remastered print, you would just get some of the best visual, you know, not to mention it's a, a great film by an absolute master, but just visually, there's nothing else like that. I mean, if you want to, if you want before you die your eyes to see something that it's not possible to see anywhere else, then you know, apart from going to the fucking desert yourself, this is it. You just get the most magnificent visual experience that you will ever, ever see, and that's why Lawrence of Arabia is on there for me. Okay, so we're on your last one, then my last one, yeah. Yep. So I went for. I don't think you're going to see this one coming, but I went for Hero. Oh, wow, interesting. Um, Jet Li film. Yeah, I saw that when it came out. It's a very, very good film. Um, It was either that or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But mm-hmm. I actually liked Hero more than Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. So I think just the the set pieces, the costume design, it, it's Jet fucking Lee. Um, I thought, yeah, this film needs to have been seen. Um, it does some interesting stuff with storytelling as well, doesn't it? The way Jet Li kind of presents himself to the Emperor and tells him what he's done, and when he the Emperor asks him questions, him, yeah. you get. But but he also gets closer to the real story as well, um, because Jet Li comes in and tells the story, and the Emperor goes, "No, I don't believe you." And then Jet Li changes his story slightly and changes it, and eventually you get the full truth. Um, and also the, the 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 film sort of it it gets told in chapters, kind of, and each chapter has a different color scheme. There's a one that's more red, like more autumn. There's one that's more blue, and and there's the scene where there there's that siege, and there's all those arrows flying through the air into the. Uh, it's pretty visually stunning, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, what did you think of the point that film was trying to make? Because I remember feeling like I, it was a bit provocative the the point that it was making. It was almost saying this guy's a dictator, but he's the best thing, so we should put up with him. Yeah. Um... I'm not saying I hated it for that. I just thought it was really interesting that a film would present that quite provocative message at the end, you know, and really kind of make you scratch your head and not be sure whether you agree with it or not. Yeah, I didn't really look at that kind of side of it. I, I thought the film for me was more about kind of the the way 
people will try and be deceitful to try and you know better themselves or mm-hmm. you know potentially try and kill the emperor kind of mm-hmm. thing um but yeah it's interesting that it kind of discusses is it better to go with the evil you know or the evil you don't know um but yeah it was it's just a stunning film it's and that, it's that an, it's it an absolute ho- uh, who's who of some of the great um uh sort of uh, performers of that at that time as well oh, you've got jet yeah. lee donnie yen tony lung uh, Maggie Chung and Zhang Ziyi's in it as well. It's just basically some of the best people that have ever made that kind of cinema all all in one movie together, you know, all and all at their best, all at their peak, you know. So, yeah, that's a great choice. It's not on my list, but it's a great choice, mate. Big up China. Yeah. A great bunch of lads. <laughs> Fucking loads of them, isn't there? So my my last film is actually from that part of the world as well, and oddly wow. enough, this this is a film that I haven't even seen. This film is called In the Mood for Love, and it's it's one car Wai, and we talked about him sort of tangentially because uh, Terence Davies died recently, and I felt that Terence Davies was like the British version of what one car Wai is. They make these very particular, very delicate films. It's another one with Tony Lung in it, who's in um, who's in Hero. He's also one of the main people in uh, Infernal Affairs, one of my favourite films, and Hard Boiled, another one of my favourite films from that part of the world. And it's also got Maggie Chung in it, who's in who's in Hero. So it's a lot of the same people. But in this film, the storyline is set in 1962 Hong Kong, you know, British Hong Kong. And a man and a woman are both find out that their respective like spouses are having an affair. So, the, you know, the, the, the this this man's wife is having an affair with this woman's husband. And they meet, kind of talk to each other and um, sort of almost like say, what the fuck's going on here? And, you know, we, we've both been really poorly treated here. And they become friends and they become close. And then they have a, they, they start to develop romantic feelings for each other. But they feel like even though they've been cheated on and their relationships are kind of over, the, there would be no, you'd totally sympathise with them. They feel like there's a... Um, you know, it, if they, you know, they feel like it's almost like a, you know, dishonourable for, for them to even, even though their marriages have are over, that to 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 cheat. So they're having this real kind of tug of war, emotional tug of war over how they feel about each other. And it's just, by all accounts, it's very slow, very beautifully made, beautifully acted. You've seen um, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, right? Yeah, I thought it was shit. But anyway, you know the bits where Michelle Yeoh is a film star in that reality. And uh, her husband in the other reality is like looks much smoother and wears a sharp suit and everything. That whole visual style is basically a, a homage to the films of Wong Kar Wai, and they, apparently they're just so beautiful and such amazing films. I just thought, you know what, I'll, I'll I'll stick that on. It's just because I feel like if I go and see it and I love it, it will be like all the other films that I've got on here. Films I've seen before, as amazing as that is, and as amazing as it will be to see something on the big screen that you've only ever seen on the small screen, sometimes it's nice to discover something completely new in a film, you know. And that's why I've put on there because I, I just hear such amazing things about it, you know. Yeah, uh, and one car wise regarded as this like great artist, so it's sort of like the it's sort of like the the Chinese version of Brief Encounter or something. It's this kind of it's very beautiful, you know, sad, but you know 
you know, and 1960s Hong Kong is an incredibly sort of glamorous and interesting time, you know, to to to, to tell a movie in. So that's why it's on there, you know. Another another one for partly for the visuals as well. So that's quite a list there. I think we'll probably do like a we'll we'll write this up and maybe do your bucket list and mine, um, which which would be uh, which would be a nice thing to have on here, mate. Um, I wanted to just quickly do a couple of things. I think you've already done this. You've said that these are your suggestions for other people's bucket lists. You said, you know, you, you, you're basically saying this should be, these, these films really should be on anyone's bucket list, right? Uh, yeah. Like, these and, are uh, films that you should go see. Yeah. And I, and I would say from mine, I, I would add a couple of mine to say, I think, two, although I've already said 2001 A Space Odyssey, you should definitely see it on the big screen. I think that's just. That's just an absolute no-brainer. And Mad Max Fury Road, again, I think films that should just be on on everyone's bucket list. Um, uh, I thought it'd be interesting. I just wrote down a couple of films that I really love. They're some of my favourite films of all time. But when I thought about it, I didn't feel a huge need to go and see them on the big screen. I don't know if you've got any similar ones, but I just thought I'd throw these out and sort of ask the question, why do I not feel any huge need to, as much as I love these films see them at the cinema and it's just just a, a quick few that i threw down escape from new york the big lebowski this is spinal tap local hero elf and one flew over the cuckoo's nest i i love those films but when i thought about them i went no no i'll probably i'd love to watch them again but i reckon i'd be happy enough just watching them at home I'm and I'm not quite sure what that is. I don't know what you think about you know if you've got films on your of your own that you thought about that you're actually happy only ever seeing them on the small screen and why that would be, mate. I think it's more of a case of just is it worth going to the cinema to see every single film? Mm-hmm. Like if you still buy the film to watch, then you're still obviously contributing to the people that you know made mm-hmm. it. Um, but like we thought, was like we said with Oppenheimer. It's uh, it's a film that out with two sequences it is mostly just kind of acting and you yeah, know courtroom drama and stuff. It's sort of that that kind of vibe and like the kind of relationships between all the characters and trying to you know the race against the Nazis. Mm-hmm. But if I f- it depends, I think there's loads of films like I wouldn't like I wouldn't have liked to have gone to see the the Hangover films in the cinema, but I still mm-hmm. found them funny when I've seen them on Netflix and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, I think it, it it depends on a few kind of factors. One of them would be like, is it something that you have an an interest in? You know, yeah. like there's films that I'm not going to be interested in enough to go to the cinema. Mm-hmm. Like Barbie, I wasn't, I didn't give a shit about Barbie, and I've caught it since, and I thought, yeah, it was good, it was a fun film, but I wouldn't have liked to have gone to see that at the cinema. Whereas mm-hmm. I preferred going to see um, Oppenheimer at the cinema, even mm-hmm. though it wasn't necessarily a, a you know a, a big screen kind of film. Um. Yeah, I think Elf's a good choice for that. I think most Christmas movies are a good choice for that. You can because it's something about watching them and enjoying them at home that's kind of part of the Christmas experience. It's like I'm not sure how a Christmas movie plays for me when I've then got to fucking walk out into the fucking wet or cold car park and drive home. You know, around that time of year, compared to watch Elf over the Christmas period in the house with the you know with some fucking leftover turkey kind of thing. You know. I yeah. feel like it's, it's I, I I feel like Elf in particular is just I'm I'm totally happy I watched that. Now obviously films like this don't exist unless they can be successful at the box office. So someone's got to go and go and see them for Christmas, right? Um, but things like I mean the Big Lebowski. I bet the Big Lebowski looked great on the big screen. 
you know, it's got yeah. really big stuff. But I just, I just feel like, I feel like I've, I, and I'm talking about that's one of my top three or four favorite films of all time. But I just remember thinking about it. I think I've got everything I need from it from from home viewing. Just, yeah. it's, it's interesting. I just, you know, I was trying to think why because Escape from New York again. That for me is all tied up in the home video experience because I am I come from that era. I'm the video rental kid, you know, where we would rent a movie from the video shop and watch it at home, and that was part of the fun. And going to the cinema was something that I also loved doing. And I think I've gradually realised that's you know how important that is to me. But I do have this you know some really great experiences renting movies at home, not even watching them on the best kind of telly. But it's just part of the that's part of the experience for me. So it's just, I thought it was just interesting. I just, I chucked out half a dozen that don't, you know, and, I, and local here, I bet local here looks great on the big screen, you know. The, what, Scotland, you know, I don't think people realise quite how beautiful Scotland is until they sort of drive over the crest of a hill and see the rest of the that country just you know, looking back at them, you know, on a, on any kind of day with sort of a, a, a astonishing colours and, and, and uh, an atmosphere about the place. So I bet local here looks fucking magnificent on the big screen. But I just feel like, it just, you know, it reminds me of watching it for the first time with mum and dad, maybe at home. I don't know what it is. But, you know, some films, like you say, you can't see them all. But some films, for me, I didn't feel like I was going to be missing out. So that was all. Just sort of throw it out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, the only the only other thing I'd add, I think Apocalypse Now should be on everybody's bucket list. I just think that's such an incredible film to watch on the big screen as well. Um, yeah. And we both said 12 Years a Slave. Um, so, so, so that's it. I mean... What, what what are your thoughts for other people? What 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 would you feel other people's you know if you were to say if you were to give advice because we don't tell people what they should put on their bucket or well, we have said what people should but, but we're always trying to share the experience for the people. What do you think people are would, would you know will benefit from if they if you know if they if they go for a, if they go through a bucket list of their own? What what what's it going to give them on the big screen? I think it's a sense of you've got around to watching a film that you've never had the chance to see before and then you've had, you actually actually end up enjoying it and you think oh why did i put that off for so long and i was like oh that was really worthwhile mm-hmm. you know it's all about you know spending your time wisely and if you spend it time wisely then there's no kind of better feeling than that mm-hmm. you know you've yeah you've done something for yourself and ended up enjoying it i think that's the yeah. main reason to go and see it yeah yeah it's same yeah i think um the only thing I'd like to add is I hope this has inspired people to think about their own bucket list. I mean, I did get some responses on the socials where people went, oh, I might add that to my list as well. That sounds good, you know, um, and, and got people thinking. Um, for me, if I was going to say to people who live anywhere near I do, um, there is a local place near me that does a Classics Monday. So it's one once a week they'll show a classic movie. Uh, the ones that are on at the moment, they wouldn't make my bucket list, but I bet they're on somebody's. The Wild One, Live and Let Die, The Way We Were, It's a Wonderful Life. I think that's, you know, I think it's nice to see a classic movie show up like that. And you think, oh, that's that. one of these days the proper classic is going to show up there. But, near, you know, near to me, there's the BFI in London, the National Film Theatre down in the South Bank, and the Prince Charles, which I have sort of a sort of connection to because it just made, you know, it, it, it made L- London work for me when I first came to like study there at university all those years ago. But what the, some of the classic films that are showing at the Prince Charles at the moment, The Godfather, Godfather Part Two. Michael Mann's Thief and Heat, Eyes Wide Shut, Die Hard, The Apartment, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, which I'm slightly surprised didn't show up on your bucket list, mate, either any of the Lord of the Rings films. Um, yeah. I suppose uh, they could have been like honourable mentions for me, but... Mm-hmm. 
because they've got the scale, haven't they, to kind of be enjoying the big screen? Yeah, they do. I, I just, I didn't feel like I feel like I wanted to cover a few genres, so it was kind mm-hmm. of ruled out by the horror and the comedy genre. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have an animated film in there somewhere, mm-hmm. and then I just. I don't think I enjoyed any of the Lord of the Rings films more than I did Gladiator. And if I was mm-hmm. going to swap out any of those films mm. for Gladiator, it, it, well, that would have been like the kind of category for them. I was trying mm-hmm. to categorize it as sure. opposed to just... But they're definitely worth an honourable mention for you. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everyone should see them. Yeah, and there's obviously the Blade Runner double feature. I mean, Blade Runner would be on my bucket list if I hadn't already seen it. And 2049 is a great film to see on the big screen as well. And uh, Alien and Aliens. These are all showing at the moment or in the next few weeks at the Prince Charles in London. So if you're based around there and those are those are films that you've um you know that you fancy seeing. I mean, most of their t- cinema tickets are kind of under a tenner, which is quite cheap for London as well. So all I would say is not only is it possible to, you know, you know, generate your own bucket list, th- these films are actually some of them are actually being shown right now. I don't know what's happening up there for you in terms of repertory cinema, mate, up in up in Scotland. There's a couple. There is the one in the west end of Glasgow called, I think it's called the Grosvenor, mm-hmm. which is in the very hoity-toity part of Glasgow. It's, you know, you can, it's like sitting in armchairs kind of uh, mm-hmm. cinema, which is a nice cinema. Um, and then there is, oh, I want to get its name, I think it's called the Glasgow Film Theatre? Yeah, that's the one. I did a quick Google and that's the one that came up for me, actually. They're doing a Michael Powell yeah. season at the moment, which... And that's more in town. You can, mm-hmm. probably, I'd probably get the train in, though I'd get the train to see both of those cinemas, mm-hmm. but that's a bit of a further trip. But yeah, there's a, there's a couple good ones that mm-hmm. have got a, a good reputation for kind of showing indie or kind of classics as opposed to just the new blockbuster, the new blockbuster, mm-hmm. the new blockbuster kind of film. But yeah, I'm sure there's one near most people listening. If you know if they're yeah. looking for one, they just just a quick Google. Yeah, and and yeah, and it really it really is worth it. It really is worth seeing where they are. You know, Google repertory cinema, Google classics at my local cinema. See what comes up because you, you might find something that just really makes a honestly makes some actual difference to your life. I'm not I'm you know not I'm not overstating that. I remember I went. I've told this story like eight hundred times. Probably even people listening to the podcast are bored of this now. I saw Blade Runner in its theatrical version because it was in the video shop. It was being rented out, yeah? And, you know, we would rent a lot of videos. We're all sci-fi fans. It came out at a time when Harrison Ford was already Han Solo and Indiana Jones. So there's no way I'm not watching a sci-fi film with Harrison Ford in it, right? And I watched it with my dad a few times, rented it a few times. And there's something about that film. It wasn't quite right in that original version, but it was still, it really struck me. It really struck my dad as well. We both thought about it a lot, talked about it a lot, liked it as a film. And then, you know, when you're in the, you know, it's on the TV, you record it off the TV. And then when VHS starts to be a bit more affordable to buy for home viewing, bought, bought it like that. And before the internet, before like, you know, you know, director's cuts and everything became a much more commonplace thing and you wouldn't get all the talk about what had happened on a production or anything else like that it just came out there's a new version of Blade Runner coming out right and it's quite different from what you saw and it actually is what the film was meant to be be, be like and it really works and something just completely fell into place and went, oh it must be it must there must be something to make you know because I, I always felt like there was something about that film that, that, that would be like that and then I read a couple of articles about how they take away the voiceover and they the, the ending's more open-ended and clearer now. And and I watched it at the cinema. 
And I was so busy thinking about, oh, the story's going to be a bit different this time that I completely forgot that all the other times I'd watched Blade Runner, it was on like a fucking VHS that 80 other people had watched from my local video shop, right? On a lucky if it's 24 inches TV screen, you know, and and barely standard definition because this is the 1980s, right? And suddenly I'm watching the full force of Ridley Scott's greatest ever film on a really big screen in London. And I was completely overwhelmed. And the difference between seeing a film that I really liked, right, in its proper version, fully up on the screen as like the, the you know, new Los Angeles skyline of the 21st century comes to life. It was such an overwhelming experience. I still remember it vividly to this day. And all I would say to people listening to this about there must be a film on your list that you've loved and you've watched. And I'm sure you've got a great big tally with a good sound cinema, sound you know, cinema sound system and everything else. There's a film somewhere among your favourites that if you got to see it on the big screen, it would be a whole new experience for you. And I hope this has um, inspired you to to go and have a look for yourself. Uh, any other any other thoughts for our for our lovely audience, mate? No, I think we've covered it nicely. Well, thank you very much, mate. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast is hosted on the Podbean Network and edited in Audacity. We are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Outside of Double Reel, you can find us both hosting a non-film related podcast, The Adamson's Versus. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus AI, is out now. and We will try and get another one out for you before the end of the year. So this is me, James Adamson, signing off and... This is me, James Adamson, signing off. Our next episode will be our regular episode 44 next month, just in time for Christmas. Please look out for other special episodes we decide to do in future. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. I don't even have a sign-off. I think I think I signed off about fucking Gaza last month, <laughs> and it's still going on. Uh, there's a ceasefire now, so we'll all cross our fingers that things are going to oh, get better. That, that makes everything better. <laughs> bombing hospitals and bombing escaping refugees and your fucking government condoning it. <laughs>